It's really my pleasure to be here tonight uh, to talk about Syria in the past, in the present, and perhaps in the future. I'm sure you've all been uh, very uh, well educated on what's called the Syrian humanitarian crisis, uh, particularly what emerged in 2015 when nearly a million Syrians and Iraqis and Afghans reached the Balkans by walking and then coming into Europe. Since then, we've seen a concerted effort among politicians in Europe to justify the containment of forced migrants in the Middle East region and to push back on the Mediterranean in order to maintain what's often called a fortress Europe. So what I'm going to try and show you tonight in 30 minutes, it'll be a race through history, so to speak, is that for Syria and its neighbors in the Levant, the integration of refugees and migrants has a very long history, and that Syria as a modern nation uh, has actually, I would say, can be identified for its cultural plurality, its local conviviality, or some might, people might even say cosmopolitanism, um, and that part of the, the explanation for that kind of local conviviality that was very much about Syria and its people uh, could be found in the fact that many of its citizens were actually refugees in the 19th and certainly in the early 20th century and found sanctuary in Syria, or we might say uh, greater Syria, or Bilad Sham, and that sanctuary and asylum was very much regarded as a duty uh, and an obligation on individuals, on families, and on the state. I'll just go through really quickly to go through some images. Let's get that right. Uh, these are really iconic images of Syria, the Umayyad Mosque, where Sunni and Shia Muslims uh, pray, as do some Christians, because, of course, as some of you know, the head of St. John of Damascus is in that mosque, and so it is a place of pilgrimage. Uh, the souk, the bazaar, obviously not as elegant as that in Aleppo, but still really quite interesting. The crusader castles, uh, this one in particular, uh, in Arabic, is often called the Castle of the Kurds. We know it as the Crack de Chevalier, having been uh, greatly extended by the hospitalier order of St. John of Jerusalem, uh, in the 12th century, and then further developed by the Ayyubids in the late 12th and 13th century. And then, of course, under Salah uh, the Ayyubid or the Kurdish uh, uh, amazing uh, uh, military man, uh, he was actually able to defeat the Crusaders in the Third Crusade and to wrest control of Palestine, including the city of Jerusalem, from the Crusaders. So uh, very... Uh, well recognized uh, an important tomb which um, later on Queen Victoria's uh, oldest grandson Kaiser Wilhelm II uh, then extended uh, by uh, donating a marble sarcophagus to sit by the wooden one that he sat in uh, more recent images Baghdad Cafe opened on the road between Damascus and Palmyra some of you who've been to Syria might have seen it might have stopped there uh, a cafe opened by two Bedouin brothers who had seen the film by that name uh, that uh, Jack Palance was in in 1987 and then Palmyra itself uh, damaged um, but probably 
a place that can be rehabilitated within the next five years or so as uh, it was a very much a kind of show damage by ISIS when they moved in. I'm going to very quickly go through the modern history of Syria as a place of refuge, as a place of asylum for forced migrants in the 19th century. I would say we talk about the 21st century as being the defining feature of the 21st century up to this point, but certainly it was the defining feature of the 19th and 20th century when millions of displaced social groups on the borderlands between imperial Russia and the Ottoman Empire ended up moving. Uh, between the late 19th century up until about 1920, there was a catalogue of displacement and dispossession of Muslims, of Christians and Jews from the borderlands, from the Pale of Europe uh, into the Balkans and then later actually into Syria itself. Um, it was what the demographic historian Justin McCarthy uh, has called the ethnic cleansing of the Ottoman Muslims and Jews between 1820 and 1920. Uh, this map, which I think you can't really see that clearly, but there's always been the kind of concern, well, where was Syria? As it wasn't actually a particular, it wasn't an, a province of the Ottoman Empire, but it was a region, a region, Bilad uh, al or Greater Syria, that was recognized uh, just as Bavaria was recognized as a region uh, before the state of Germany, but it was well known and amongst the Arabs, as I had said earlier, was called Bilad al and extended from the north, uh, near uh, Antioch or Alexandretta to um, uh, Jebel Arish in, in the south. So Greater Syria or Bilad al extended over what today we would consider as Palestine, Israel, Jordan, Lebanon, and Syria itself. So this is a map that probably would look more familiar to you. Uh, this is the, uh, the darker area is the Ottoman Empire in the 19th century, and an area where, uh, in particular, in these regions, over a period of 100 years, the Ottomans faced uh, war with imperial Russia. Russia was uh, very keen on extending its borders uh, first west, uh, in this region uh, where it wasn't very successful uh, and then spent most of the next uh, uh, five wars uh, moving down through the Caucasus. Russia won all but one of these six wars. Uh, the only war that it lost was the Crimean War of 1856 um, and the way that uh, uh, peace conferences were managed at the end um, resulted with the Muslim population of the Crimea being told they had to leave. And most of them then ended up moving into the Balkans. These were the Tatars. About half a million Tatars had to leave Crimea as um, part of the treaty at the end of the Crimean War, which most of us only really think about in terms of Florence Nightingale or uh, the beginning of live news media coverage or maybe even the Russian skill at amputation but very few people recognize that that was the war where you had the first of uh, half a million people um, and then later on even more forcibly displaced and uh, moved into the Balkans. In the 1860s um, this is the, uh, the Crimean War, this was the movement out um, uh, 
And I, I often say that this is a war that was actually started over a, a dispute uh, over who should hold the keys to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, whether it should be Russia or it should be France. Uh, and in fact, it was uh, the Sultan in Constantinople awarding the keys to France that resulted with um, the Russian Tsar attacking the Ottomans, sinking their fleet, and then the British and the French getting very nervous uh, at the possibility of Russia being able to come in and take over Constantinople and also the uh, entrance into the Mediterranean. So Russian influence uh, uh, in uh, what I'm going to call Bilad Sham has been ongoing for a very long time. In the 1860s, uh, we had a further uh, Russian uh, movement. The Russians then decided they had moved the Muslims out of this area, and it was time to move them out of what today we would call uh, Georgia, Ossetia, Chechnya, uh, and the various uh, Circassian states. They succeeded in defeating one of the most important leaders uh, from, uh, actually he was Dagestani, but from, from Chechnya, and with his defeat, another million Circassians then uh, moved uh, out. The first group moved out because they didn't want to live uh, in a state that was um, encouraging people to convert to uh, uh, Orthodox Church. They wanted to remain Muslim. Uh, but then in the, the next war with the Ottomans, uh, which was fought in the 1870s, um, the, uh, the Imperial uh, Russian Empire uh, successfully uh, moved and defeated the uh, Ottomans all along this area and also began moving into, uh, into this area of the Balkans. And in the peace conference at Berlin in 1878, the French and the British insisted that the Russians had to pull back, uh, but then the Russians insisted that all the Muslim migrants who had come into the Balkans had to leave and move far away, and this was the first movement then uh, into Anatolia and into the southern provinces uh, that we would call Greater Syria today. So this was then another million, in total about four million uh, Muslims and about 50,000 Jews ended up being moved uh, from this part of uh, Central Europe and the Balkans into um, the area of Bilad Sham. I'll just show you an image here of the places that the, the first group, the Circassians and the Chechnyans and the Dagestani, uh, began to populate. There was some instrumental movement that the, the Ottomans gave them uh, uh, some freedom in choosing where to go, uh, but they encouraged them to form villages and settle where there was already fighting, for example, uh, amongst the the, the the Druze and some of the Kurds, uh, or the Druze and the Bedouin, and so on. So they, there's a kind of a line that you can see that is followed where the, the Circassians uh, were basically asked to settle. They were really what I would call an uh, iconic group um, that uh, had captured the, the imagination of uh, Europeans, but also of the Ottomans, the military prowess of the men, uh, was significant, and these uh, forced migrants very quickly 
rose up in the ranks of the Ottoman army in the southern provinces and the, the mythology or the reality of the beauty of the women was something uh, that continued to be discussed and talked about um, even into the 20th century. With these huge numbers of people being moved into the area of uh, Bilad Sham, the Ottoman response was really quite interesting. I often say that the Ottoman response was the first modern response, the first modern humanitarian regime. Um, they very quickly realized that they had huge numbers of people. They couldn't allow them just to remain, you know, taking a shelter in the mosques and the churches around Constantinople, what have you. And they quickly developed a code, which was called the Refugee Code of 1857, um, to help uh, in uh, setting out a very decentralized approach to disperse people as quickly as possible to the provinces and set out grounds for their protection. And that grounds of their protection was uh, in incorporating them as subjects of the state, we could say citizens, um, in this multicultural empire and um, encouraging them to preserve the freedom to practice whatever religion they were attached to and also to build their own houses of worship. On top of that, they transformed the code into a, an actual law that they implemented whereby they granted all of these immigrants, refugees, uh, um, a series of rights to help them integrate. And the first right that they gave them was a minimal amount of, of state land in order for them to become farmers. Secondly, they exempted them from taxation and they exempted the young men in these families from the obligation to serve in the army. Um, and so with this promise of freedom, um, of a religious faith and uh, dispensation from you know, the normal obligations of a citizen in terms of taxation, um, large numbers of refugees came and also large numbers of migrants came from Europe and we can, I can go into that later on. But along with, the, with these forced migrants came a number of uh, political exiles and intellectual leaders from Hungary, from Bohemia, from Poland, also uh, farmers uh, in Switzerland uh, and uh, again in, in um, Hungary and even from the United States. Uh, began responding to what they recognized as free land uh, and the ability to uh, create a, a new life. So the, the refugee cri wasn't ever a crisis, but the refugee movement uh, also meant that the southern provinces of the Ottoman Empire could be revived, if, uh, if that's the best way to put it. So the... The, I've talked about the, uh, the commission and the migrants, and then, of course, uh, with these large numbers came a great deal of international aid, which basically came out of missionary communities and the Red Cross that had been established after the Crimean War. With these numbers, um, as I said earlier, people had to be moved out of the mosques. This is the, actually, this is the um, uh, Santa Sofia um, in Constantinople at the time where almost 3,000 people were gathered for several weeks before the government could uh, start assigning people with plots of land in the southern provinces. By the 1880s, this uh, 
code and commission actually became a general administration for refugees and immigrant affairs. And not only did they provide land, but they began to transport people into the provinces to get them moving earlier to help them to settle. And amongst the, the, the elements that were used in order to try and provide for these groups, the Ottomans used the Muslim principle of aiding migrants by charging the native communities uh, to accept the immigrants or the refugees as, as brothers. And for example, in Damascus, a charge was levied on every household of one piaster annually to assist all of these refugees and immigrants in settling in the local area. And um, using uh, digital um, sources, I've been able to come up with a figure of about $10 uh, as the amount levied against uh, every family in order to provide for these people. So you had a large number of, Sar of Circassian Muslims uh, coming in, settling in the areas uh, of the, where the, eventually the Hejaz Railroad was built, um, but in Syria along the divide between settled agriculture and uh, pastoralism. The next group that moved into this area was the Armenian group in the 1890s. Beginning in the 1890s, it was a trickle and then a flood uh, and then a very serious movement uh, of people that culminated in the Armenian genocide uh, during World War I. Of all the people that died, and the figures are still highly contested, but um, it's understood that about 750,000 survived, many of them then settling in Syria and in what today is Lebanon, but also in Palestine and in Egypt. So Armenians then uh, were accepted and settled alongside other forced migrants a decade or so before. And then following them were the Kurdish groups, I mean, obviously, the Kurds had entered into Syria in the 13th century with Salah din and the Ayyubid dynasties, and so there were uh, maybe 1.5, a bit more, million Kurds very well integrated in Syria. But in the 1920s, with the establishment of the Republic of Turkey, um, a small group of Kurds uh, rose up with um, Sheikh Said and revolted because they didn't want to live in a secular state and they were very unhappy with the abolition of the Islamic Caliphate. And this wave of about 10,000 Kurds then came into Syria and were granted. Uh, at that point, I would say uh, it was a refuge. They were then followed in the 1930s by a wave of Assyrian Christians fleeing Iraq at the end of the British mandate or when the British returned the mandate to the League of Nations. Um, so there was uh, about 100,000, 150,000 who also came into Syria at the time. So by, by the time that we get to the end of World War I and greater Syria uh, falls prey to all of the secret wartime agreements and is carved up uh, amongst the British and the French, and I think the Italians were supposed to have uh, a chunk and maybe even um, the the Greeks had some hopes at one point. But the modern Syria that we know of today uh, then became uh, a, a state that wasn't yet ready uh, to stand on its own, and so it was mandated, uh, contrary to the findings of the interwar uh, commission or the 
King Korean Commission um, mandated to France. And some historians who looked at this period have actually thought, well, the modern nation state of Syria is actually a refuge state because most of its citizens, or many of its citizens, had only recently come within one or two generations before. And the French initially thought that perhaps because we had, there were so many different uh, ethno-religious groups within Syria that it might be easier to manage Syria if they divided it up into statelets. And so one of the first uh, efforts of, uh, of the French was to create six different statelets. So Jebel Druze, uh, the Damascus state, Lebanon, the Alawite state, Alexandretta, which they ended up giving away to Turkey in 1938, and Aleppo. Um, however, this idea of uh, finding a way of um, governing Syria didn't work very well for all those people who considered themselves Syrians. So the great Arab uprising that is talked about in the 1920s actually began in the Druze area um, and the uprising wasn't so much the French have to leave, but rather we're not prepared to be separated. We all considered ourselves one nation. And it was an effort to try and get the French to drop this kind of policy of ruling them as six different states and recognizing them as one modern nation. Um, at the same time that this was going on, partially in an effort to quell some of the uprising, the French granted citizenship to all the Armenians located in mandated Syria. They granted citizenship to all the Kurdish refugees who had fled from Turkey in the 1920s. They granted citizenship to all of the Assyrian Christians who had arrived. And this move was uh, very well accepted by Syrians, so much so that in 1948, uh, when we have the, the Nakba or the uh, expulsion or flight of Palestinians from from Palestine at the time of the creation of the State of Israel, the modern state of Syria proposed actually citizenship to um, up to 300,000 of the Palestinians who had fled, obviously recognizing the very close relationship. Uh, this never came to pass with the assassination of Colonel Husni Zayim. But the point was that after that negotiation failed, the Syrian state was the first state to pass legislation to grant Palestinians in the country all the rights of citizenship, basically, except for the right to vote. So they very quickly were granted what we often call temporary protection. So just as a kind of summing up, this was Syria's response to forced migrants, or Bilad Sham, the Circassians, the Chechens, the Albanians, and the Kosovars up to 1920, Armenians, Kurds, Assyrians, Palestinians, second wave of Palestinians, and then in the 1990s, another wave of Palestinians from Kuwait. And in the early 2000s, of course, between 1 to 1.5 million Iraqis fleeing the failed state of Iraq and uh, uh, receiving refuge in Syria. Quite large numbers, if you consider, um, uh, in, in terms of... Uh, if I put this in terms of UK population, it would be almost as though by the time we get to the Iraqis, the 1.1 to 1.5 million, uh, it would be as though the entire population of Scotland had fled into England and sought asylum for six or seven years. Uh, very 
I'm not sure that it would have gone without too much protest. But just to, to bring that all together again, you get a sense now of how Syria became really central in terms of providing refuge uh, for so many of those who had to flee or were forced out of homes and homelands in the, on the borders between what was the, uh, the frontier between uh, Russia and uh, the Ottoman Empire. One of the, uh, the most important elements that I think this created was that these 19th century and 20th century migrants began to build roots um, that were horizontal, if you can accept that roots can be horizontal. The way I've seen some apple trees that are kind of trained to sort of uh, spread their branches uh, horizontally um, along quite some distance. So many of these 19th and 20th centuries, new refugees and migrants to Syria, maintained ties across what became modern borders. These were social ties, sometimes they were economic ties, but they were of, of great significance. And I think we'll help to explain why, when we come now to looking at what happened after 2011, why certainly for the first few years, the, the bulk of the population of uh, displaced Syrians remained very much on the, on the borders of Syria, on the border with Jordan here, and then of course in Lebanon. And that is very much because of the, the significance of these ties um, that were managed uh, um, for the, the previous uh, um, century, if I can put it that way, and seemed to hold up until uh, perhaps the, uh, the massive onslaught in 2015, which included the move into the area by ISIS as well as uh, Russian activity um, supporting the government of Syria in uh, trying to win back its territory. So I just will close very quickly to just reinforce what I consider the importance of recognizing the modern history of Syria as being made up of basically refugees and forced migrants from the eastern Mediterranean, uh, the Black Sea region, and how important these horizontal ties have been. So much so that even today, uh, despite the fact that we're into the seventh year of this crisis, many Syrians prefer to remain near the border with Syria where they can be guest workers or... Uh, um, <coughs> members of the informal economy rather than uh, continuing a sort of a forced migration uh, into uh, other parts of the world. Um, so I will just stop here and say that in my uh, accounting of this making of Syria as a refuge state, I've tried to integrate interviews with the oldest surviving generations of uh, people from these various communities who've made uh, Syria into the kind of cosmopolitan uh, state that it was, and I hope it'll return to something similar in the future, although, of course, it can never be exactly like what it was in the past. So I'll end at this point and um, hand over to Diana.
Thank you so much, Dawn, for that incredible overview of, of how Syria, um, under the Ottomans in particular, had, had become uh, a place where refugees were received as, as of right, as of, as of duty, just instinct, really. Um, and just to mention the, the final one, I happened to be in Damascus in 2006 in the summer when that final wave of refugees came, when that war uh, blew up uh, unexpectedly between Israel and Hezbollah in the south of Lebanon. And hundreds, if not thousands, of Lebanese came to the border with Syria. Um, and Syrians who didn't know these people at all, a lot of my friends, suddenly started driving to the border. And I said, what, what are you doing? You know, what, do you know these people or something? And they said, no, no, we don't know them, but we know that they're in trouble, they need help, so we're just going to go and collect them, bring them back into our homes and look after them until it's time to go back. And that was my first exposure, first hand, to just the, the sheer instinct, the humanitarian instinct which I should say is nothing to do with the government. Nothing is not in any way orchestrated by the Assad regime at all. This is individuals taking the initiative, um, and, and so deeply is it, is it in, ingrained in them. So I'd like to uh, explain about the, the one particular individual, if you like, who, who lived through an extraordinarily turbulent time in. Syria's history, a uh, merchant of Syria, a real man, a textile merchant, born in 1921, and he died in 2013, aged, aged 92. And so his life, he lived through this incredible roller coaster of, of wars, you know, um, complete instability everywhere, always political instability. And the thing that came through in my researches for this again and again was the fact that in this part of the world, I concluded that people have, have learnt that you can't rely on politics. Politics is a dirty game, as, as the, the Lebanese proverb goes. A man who enters politics is a man climbing into the garbage. So politics has always been a dirty game in this part of the world. And so people... Um, decided there were only two things that they could count on. Religion, whatever religion that might happen to be for those individuals, and commerce, trade, the importance of trade. So that's why, through uh, the merchant, and I should just explain about the cover, he was a textile merchant, so the, we've made the, uh, the cover look like a piece of cloth, because what this merchant traded in is Yorkshire broadcloth. So he was trading, and his <coughs> Ottoman ancestors started this in the 16th century. They were already trading broadcloth from Yorkshire into, into Syria, into Homs, where my merchant was born. And the, uh, the stitching here is designed um, to look like uh, a vine regenerating, the, the theme of survival, the fact that merchants in this part of the world are so accustomed to wars, to turbulence, that they have learnt how to be very agile and, and to survive at all costs by following the strict constants in their life of commerce and religion. So, again, a map just to give a sense... Oh, this is the, the Ottoman Empire at its peak, if you like, in the eastern Mediterranean. And you can see uh, all, all these lines, colored lines, are not actual borders. 
These are administrative borders which the Ottomans drew up to collect taxes. The Ottomans were all about collecting taxes. They were very happy for people. It didn't matter what what religion, what ethnicity uh, you were. They wanted trade to flow freely. And so this whole area, if you like, was like a giant single market. There there were no boundaries, no restrictions. And so the broadcloth that came in from from Yorkshire just uh, came, came across... Uh, no tariffs along the way at all. Um, and as Dawn was explaining, I mean, the, 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 the province, uh, provincial um, administrative district of Syria, greater Syria, natural Syria, at that time, Damascus was right in the center, pretty much, uh, because, of course, it at that time included Jerusalem and uh, the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. It came right down, uh, including Gaza and all these areas. So um, oh, that is meant to have been taken out. Um, now, this, uh, this is a map that the French actually drew in 1935. The French sent troops out to, uh, to cover all of, um, go off into all the towns to look at the ethnic makeup and the religious makeup of the population um, which they had been mandated to look after in order to control them, of course. And uh, it's an incredible patchwork that shows exactly what Dawn was explaining about how all these different groupings um, blended together to make this sort of mosaic. And so you've got the majority, about 70% were were the Sunnis, then you've got the Shiites, the Alawites, the the Circassians, the Ismailis, the Druze, the Yazidis, the Turkomans, the Kurds, the Turks, the Turkmens, the Maronites, the Greek Catholics the Greek Orthodox, the Syrian Catholics, and the Armenians, and that's not all of them by any means. You've still, even today, got 17 different denominations of, 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 uh, of Christianity. All of those churches are actually still functioning in Damascus today uh, in, in smaller numbers, but they are all still functioning. And the glue of, these, of this society has always been, been trade. At this point, of course, uh, Lebanon didn't exist. Uh, France had the mandate over that whole area as well. So this is my merchant, age six. And he was born in Homs, as I mentioned, uh, a Sunni uh, Syrian. And look what he's wearing. He is wearing Yorkshire broadcloth because this is normal attire for Syrians, for everybody, basically. Um, You didn't, you know, the days before jeans and... uh, mass market uh, synthetics. This is what people wore, really top quality cloth that had come all the way out from, from Yorkshire. It was, um, people, people lived in suits, even at this age. So age six, Abu Shakir was going to school and being taught by nuns in Homs. The, the population at that time was um, about a third uh, Christian, two-thirds Muslim, and the best schools were run by the missionary Christians, and so that's where his parents sent him, to go to the best school. Completely normal, it was the same thing that pretty much was happening all over, all over Syria. Now, this map was actually drawn by an Armenian in the 1950s, so by this point, um, Lebanon has been given its independence here and is carved out, and, and the state of Syria, more or less, as, as we know it today, has been carved out by the Allies after, um, after World War I. So, and, and you can see now how Damascus is right down in the south. It's no longer in the center at all, because, of course, all these areas to the south and the creation of Israel, all that has been lost. 
But even so, even with this sort of amputated state that, that um, Syria is in now, even so, it, the, the, everything is based on trade, openness to trade, that has made it this sort of multicultural, multi-religious, and multi-ethnic society, where people intermarry, we must remember. So Sunnis historically have married Shia, and their children call, call themselves Sushi, and say, well, where do we fit into the picture? Um, marriage even between Christians and Muslims uh, happens. It's not that common, but it, but it has always happened. Um, a number of my friends are, are, have, are in those sorts of marriages. Um, so now this is um, my merchant uh, who is age 12. Now by this point, of course, he's still wearing his beautiful, uh, his beautiful broadcloth suit from Yorkshire. But now he's got his tie, which is a sign that he's become a man, age 12, because his father has died when he was 10, leaving him to look after his mother and seven sisters. So he suddenly is catapulted into adulthood uh, and has to take on um, this, this, this role. And uh, this is the environment in which he now had to look after his father's shop, selling textiles in the souk in Homs. So all he had was his little, his little stall in the souk there from which to try to support his family. And he struggled. Um, he was forced to marry his, um, his first cousin. It was a disaster, very common in Syria, um, a way of keeping the money in the family. Absolute disaster. He got divorced, but they had a daughter. Um, he was ostracized by the family. So a massive tragedy. It looked as if his life was condemned to penury, basically, as if he had no future whatsoever. But what happened um, was he, had a, he, he basically was given a lucky... Uh, well, I say lucky, but this actually goes back to the culture, the nature of the culture, is that when somebody falls on hard times, you help them. And so a friend of his father... Um, gave him a big loan. A sheep farmer said to him, could see how miserable he was sitting in his uh, stall in, in Homs, and said, look, I've just sold all my sheep. I don't need all the money I've got. Come with me. Opened his safe, showed him piles of cash, and said, help yourself. Refused even to have an invoice or any kind of receipt. And with that, my merchant, who I call Abu Shakir from now on, because that's, that's how everybody referred to him, with that money, he went to Beirut and started to trade, bought in, in quantity, bought wholesale in quantity, and gradually, gradually built up his business. Um, but then, of course, in the 1950s, the, the Ba'ath Party began and the nationalization, the whole socialist program, which made the commercial climate very, very difficult um, to function in. And so Abu Shakir realized that there was no future to, to trying to develop his business in Syria. So discreetly, he moved out to Beirut. He pretended he kept his, his tiny shop in, in Homs, and he moved out to Beirut into the, the free zone of the port here. And from there, he was able to start trading across the Arab world into the Arabian Peninsula, um, all around the Arab world, and build up the beginnings of an empire. But then, of course, he was hit again by the turbulence of the region, the Lebanese Civil War in 1975. His, his warehouse, one of the biggest textile warehouses in the Middle East, was looted. Right at the beginning, he lost everything again. So yet again, he had to start all over again. And what he did, and this time he thought, right, the Middle East has become too turbulent. I've already lost everything twice. It's chaos. I want to secure my broadcloth. 
So I'm going to come to London, and I'm going to come to the UK. And he ended up coming here um, and buying a mill in Bradford, which, which were the main suppliers of the broadcloth. So he'd been trading with them as a, as a customer, but now he came and actually bought the mill because it was, it was the subject of a takeover bid, and he was terrified he was going to lose his supply. Um, and so he... Uh, he actually did this. this. This is what he looked like. This is the picture of him in the boardroom in, in the mill in, in Bradford. And um, he, he bought this mill at a time when all the other mills were going bankrupt. They were all closing. So he, if you like, as an economic migrant, came in and saved a mill in Bradford. And to this day, that mill is still functioning. It's the only functioning mill still making cloth in Bradford. And here is the Lady Mayoress of Bradford and Abu Sherkir planting a tree outside the mill um, as, a, as a symbol of their sort of joint cooperation. But all of this, um, by this point, Abu Sherkir, um, having secured his, his, um, the source of the broadcloth, was able to build up an empire across the world. He was trading out to America, to the Far East, very high-quality end um, uh, cloth and textiles. So he handed it over to his sons. By this stage, he had four sons from his second wife, who is still alive, and this is, this is she, Om uh, Shaker. Um, and so late in life, he decided that he wanted to go back to Syria. So here he is, returning to Homs. He, he, um, he lived there, um, would, have, would have died there, basically, but for the, the war that then caught up with him yet again at the end of his life. And so um, in Homs, this is one of the churches, Umar Zinar, the, the most famous church in Homs. Uh, as you know, Homs was the capital of the revolution um, at the beginning. And so uh, very early on in 2012, all of this, the old area of the, of the city was completely pulverized. And it became too dangerous for Abu Sherkir to stay there. And so his sons brought him back to London, where he had to um, make do with... Uh, the joys of Regent's Park and the pigeons and things. What he, what he so loved in Syria was looking after his farm and looking after animals and growing plants and things. And back, in, back in London, all he had was uh, the park, Regent's Park Mosque, of course, he could go to, um, and looking after the plants on his balcony. So um, his whole life, if you like, was a, an extraordinary story of how to overcome um, the turbulence of the region. And his sons wanted his story told as an example to young Syrians to show them that, look, you can do this in spite of how hopeless it looks. You can, you can rebuild. You can succeed commercially as long as you do it um, with honesty and trust. And what I learned in, in the researches of this book was that his entire empire was built on trust. He was actually semi-illiterate, having left school at 10, he, he, he could do figures, but he couldn't read and write very well. But he had an instinct about people. So it didn't matter whether you were Christian, Druze, Jew. He had business partners of all shades. The important thing was, could you be trusted? Could he do business with you? And if you could, then nothing even needed to be written down. Even later with his, with his sons, um, when they had some British people on the board back, back here in the, the company in, in Yorkshire, um, the British people on the company used to say, well, you know, we've looked at the books and th these people owe you all this money. 
you know, surely you should be going after them getting this money. And, and they always said, don't worry, we know them, we trust them, they'll, they'll pay us back. And that, that was the basis on which they always operated. And they, they never lost money. They, they told me they never, ever, people always gave them the money back. And they continued the tradition themselves uh, in the same way that their father had benefited from an act of pure generosity because he paid the sheep farmer back, incidentally. The, within the year, he paid him back. And his sons have continued this tradition of, of giving money to young people who are just starting out. They just, if they trust them, They've just said, okay, take this money. Don't worry about when you pay us back. We, we, we trust you. We know we'll get it back. And it's such a contrast to our sort of corporate cutthroat world in which everything uh, seems to be based on trying to undermine your rivals and trying to you know, crush your rival. The whole point about the, the, the sense of community that Abu Shakir built up was that you make money... The point of wealth generation is first to look after your family and after that to look after the community. That was just instinctive, completely instinctive. You did not, um, you didn't not, you weren't, you didn't live an ostentatious lifestyle. He lived very simply all his life. The point of all, he gave discreetly to charities throughout his life, but nobody in this country knew anything about it. When I interviewed people up in, in uh, Yorkshire about him, and I said, did you have any idea of all the charities he was supporting everywhere? And they said, no, we never knew a thing, because, of course, you didn't talk about it. It's, again, it's part of the Islamic culture that you just do these things, but you don't talk about it. So he's been the most wonderful um, model for, for, people, for people to follow. And so... Part of the point of writing the book was to project forwards then. So the final chapter in the book actually asks, right, this was his life, so what can we learn from his life about what may happen, about you know, the way Syria may go in the future? And so there were signs of hope in all of that. I mean, in spite of the, the ghastly um, polit politics of it all at the moment, uh, and it's clear that as long as the current regime, in my view, stays in power, there is not going to be sufficient stability for honest commerce to come back. Sadly, the conditions are very ripe for dishonest commerce at the moment. And we've seen it with the war economy that has grown up so hugely and with lots of new faces, new warlords who have been rewarded basically with seats in parliament. Um, and although the Assad regime has recently said that they are welcoming um, refugees back, they've, they've announced this amnesty where um, people inside the country have got four months to come forward and they'll be, um, they'll be pardoned, basically. Um, these are men who've largely dodged conscription. And six months for people outside, they've, um, they've still said that... Um, uh, there, and sadly, there have been enough cases of, of where it's, it's not... Uh, the promises are given, but nobody trusts them. The trust simply is not there in the regime. And they've also shown it in things like um, refugees um, in Lebanon, for instance, uh, have asked to come back to areas like Zabadani, close to the, to the um, border with Lebanon, and the Assad regime has refused because these are Sunnis and they don't want them coming back into Zabadani. They want to keep these areas um, for their loyalists, for Alawite areas or for um, Shia who there are settling. So there is a lot of social engineering going on at the moment. Um, so the picture is very cloudy about 
the future of, of these refugees and, and them coming back. So I'm sure there'll be um, lots of questions about this, which um, Dawn and I will be very happy to answer. Thank you. Thank you very much, both Dawn and Diana, for those fascinating talks, uh, one following the other so well, one giving us a broad sweep of history uh, and the other focusing on an individual family, individual man's experience, but both, I think, illustrating the deep social values uh, present in Syrian society, openness, generosity to refugees, uh, openness and generosity to the uh, communities in which they live. Um, these, I think, many of us in this room have come across examples of those values and that kind of behavior from our Syrian friends. Um, and I think it's extremely important to bring it out and to add that important dimension to what this country understands about migration flows. Uh, and I'm sure those messages would, in fact, get a good reception. They just need to be brought out further. Fascinating also, Diana, giving us some thoughts about the future in Syria, and I'm sure all of us are going to be drawing on the experience that they've, they've conveyed in both the talks um, to reflect as well and to imagine what might now happen there. But I'm going to open the uh, floor now to questions. Uh, I think we can take, uh, I think, about 15, 15 minutes or so, and we'll have a roving mic, so if you could wait for the mic to come to you and then identify yourself and ask your question. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. My name's Gareth Brown. I'm a foreign correspondent with The National based here in London. Um, my question's for you, Dawn. I, I wonder if there are any lessons... I understand all kind of migrations and forced displacements are different. Are there any lessons about when a temporary migration becomes a permanent one? And, and are there kind of any lessons from that that we can apply to the current situation in Syria? Well, I'm going to have to start by saying a little bit about my own personal philosophy. I do tend to be a pessimistic optimist. So, um, also, I, I spent quite a bit of time between 2014 and 2016 um, interviewing displaced Syrians in Turkey, in Lebanon, and in Jordan. And I was really quite surprised how many of those who are interviewed are waiting until they feel they can go back with some kind of safety. So... And I think this is something that Diana was hinting at. At the present time, the Assad regime is trying to raise lots of money for reconstruction. Um, and for some people, there's a sense that Syria is a failed state. But um, there's been some very interesting work by a, polit a political scientist like, like uh, Stephen Heidemann, who's kind of raised the red flag to say, don't think Syria is a failed state at all. It's a fierce state. Um, and is putting forward a plan of, about how it's going to reconstruct the country, uh, how it's going to welcome uh, some people back. Um, and um, um, some sort of statements about um, 
the kind of safety that some people would uh, receive if they returned. But his warning is, don't give any money unless you actually force the hand of the regime to allow people to return without prejudice. And I say that because I remember talking with the vice president of economic planning who left the country in 2012, joined ESQA, now he's with the World Bank, and he's in charge of the reconstruction. And I was talking to him and I said, well, what are your reconstruction plans like? He said, oh, well, we're developing a plan for 17 million. I said, but the population of Syria is 22 million. He said, yeah, yeah, well, we're not, we're not thinking about the 5 million who left the country. So there is a sense within the regime that if you left, we're not interested in you coming back. And of course, most of them, as Diana said, are Sunni Muslim because the regime also, in order to, I think, uh, garner uh, support, um, made a very big point about it was protecting minorities in Syria, particularly the various Christian and the heterodox uh, syncretic religious groups in the country. So there was never kind of a mass flood of, of Christians leaving the country as you saw in Iraq before. So I'm going about this in a roundabout way. I think if the West is very strong about the kind of reconstruction money it gives and that with it there's some sort of tie to protect people who return from being um, taken in for questioning or disappearing, etc., then I think you're going to see many of the people's which is about three and a half to four million, sitting near the border in southern Turkey, in northern uh, Jordan, and in the, particularly in the Baqa of Lebanon, th they will be returning. Um, obviously, there are now issues in, in Turkey which suit the Turkish government. I mean, Erdogan has talked about it and has already started granting citizenship to Syrians without making them give up on their Syrian-ness or Syrian identity, but he is granting uh, citizenship to uh, qualified, skilled Syrians who fit his notion of the kind of voting public that he would like. So obviously there will be some who won't be returning, but I, I do think over the next decade we're going to see gradual return. There will be people who uh, will find that they are safe to return and so they will go back. Um, you know, returning to your homeland is a very strong pull, especially when it's that close. Um, but as I said, I tend to be a pessimistic optimist. Just one thing uh, to add on that, actually, on the reconstruction. Um, I heard a very, what struck me as a very good idea <laughs> that I haven't heard anybody else mention, uh, because, of course, it's, it's the exodus of, of people the age between 18 and 42 to, to escape military conscription. Um, those are the ones that the, uh, the regime wants back, if you like, because they've got this huge manpower shortage. They haven't got the, the, the people, the skilled people, massive um, you know, d disproportion. Three to one in, in the workforce is, is women now. Three quarters of the workforce is women, and they just haven't got the men to do the rebuilding. So it is... Uh, it is uh, <laughs> An extraordinary uh, thing and the idea is to get these people to come back because they don't want to come back while there's any chance that they're going to have to do military service and risk being sent to a front and get killed um, but if there was some way perhaps you know in a, in a next year or something like that where they could come back 
and rebuild the country instead of their military service for two years. Military service is two years for men. And if women could volunteer as well, um, be drafted in for it, um, which at the moment they're not. Women are excluded from from military service. So uh, uh, that's rather a nice... uh, To be optimistic, I mean, (laughs) it would be wonderful to imagine it could be done. And that, that might persuade some of the young men to come back if they were sure they couldn't they weren't going to be drafted into the army and, and, and they would get a full amnesty. Thank you very much. So another question? Yes. <coughs> um, I'm very uh, moved by... Yes? Uh, yeah, I'm very moved by uh, what you say about the sense of trust, uh, which is a very important concept, a very important human element of trusting other people. Uh, in, in the future, I mean, when you say future, and I was looking at that clock over there on the wall, and, and what is the future for many, many Syrians? Uh, I am the creative producer of an organization based in London. Uh, we've been inviting Syrian artists and writers to come here to exchange knowledge, to exchange the art with us, and to continue that trust that's been betrayed in many cases. And many people who we have invited, they have unfortunately not get the visa, simply because they are Syrian. And they still keep thinking why being Syrian, it becomes a difficulty for us to move. So when we're talking about the future, I'm thinking of these people. Thank you very much uh, for both of those um, presentations. Uh, mine is Alex Donnelly. Um, Professor Chatty, I, I very much admire you for being a, an optimistic pessimist. Um, uh, allow me to uh, perhaps a rather uh, an unpopular uh, comment, be a, be a sort of pessimistic pessimist, um, and present maybe a, a different narrative that I was wondering whether you felt whether it had any um, legitimacy, um, which is that by 1850s, um, the Ottoman Empire was already very much the weak man of Europe, as it was described. The Greek War of Independence had destroyed the Ottoman navy, and they had no control over their own borders and had lost um, the most uh, wealthy and lucrative parts of the empire on the European uh, continent. Um, so there is a potential counter-narrative, which would be that the 1857 policy um, was a desperate act to integrate millions of desperate people who the empire on its last legs really had very little resources to support, and that as those groups of people continued to come in, as you described, throughout the latter half of the 19th century, um, it eventually resulted in the collapse of an empire of several centuries and carving up and um, partition to European powers. Um, And very sadly, in your narrative, the um, displacement of Iraqis, uh, not this time from the 
Russian invasion to the north, but the um, uh, US-UK invasion maybe to the east. Uh, and I was in um, Damascus as well in, in 2005, 2006, and remember um, the refugees uh, coming in from, from, from Iraq. Um, also <coughs> precipitated a level of social unrest, which tragically also culminated just a few years later um, in political and social um, collapse and civil war. Now, clearly, in, in all cases, in terms of the deterioration of the Ottoman Empire and the eventual collapse, and in terms of the Syrian civil war, it's hugely complex, and there are multiple, multiple variables. Um, but do you think that there might be an argument that the generosity, openness, cosmopolitanism that you very admirably wish to privilege may be the ethical side of political inefficacy um, and, and, and collapse? And do you think that may have some consequences or lessons learned for the pressures, political and social, facing Europe uh, today? Thank you. That was quite a question. I'm going to start by saying I'm an anthropologist. I'm not a historian, but I'm very interested in the history of the late Ottoman Empire. And I'm very interested in what I'm going to call a revision history of the Ottoman Empire. I think this idea that it was already the sick man of Europe in 1850 is being contested by a lot of young scholars. Um, certainly the Tanzimat, the reform periods from between 1840 until about, uh, until the sort of the last of the wars against Russia. Um, I don't, I don't see from what I've read that, Otto, that the Ottoman Empire was on its last legs. Yes, it was losing its most lucrative um, provinces in the Balkans, a lot of it because of Russian meddling and also uh, uh, European support for this growth of, uh, of um, uh, sectarian or nationalism, ethno-religious sort of nationalism. Um, I think the reforms, which I didn't have a chance to talk about, it was, you know, there just wasn't enough time, but the, the way in which they created the millet system and formalized it was one in which permitted, at least on paper and in, in laws, the equalization of all of the subjects of the Ottoman Empire so that it wasn't just the, the Muslim millet, but there was the Muslim, the Christian, the Jewish millets. And these were all meant to have equal basis. Now, that created quite some disturbances, I must admit, but you have to also remember that the Ottoman Empire, thanks to the work of Medhat Pasha, created the first constitution that we had long before we had really significant constitutions and parliaments functioning in Europe in the same way that they did in the Ottoman Empire. So I would contest this kind of idea that the 19th century, it was falling apart. What I do agree about, and I didn't have time to develop that, is that the southern provinces were underpopulated. There had been centuries of, of plague. Of, nobody really knows exactly why they were underpopulated. But there was also the rise of malaria in areas that could have been um, uh, successful agrarian areas that were depriving the sublime port, if I can call it that way, from important income. So when they had these masses of people coming in, they created the refugee code, the immigrant code, the commission, etc., to get people moved into these areas to become farmers so they could be taxed 
and so that the coffers of the Ottoman Empire would uh, be strengthened. But they also had problems. They were trying to modernize too quickly. They, they took out huge loans to get the Suez Canal built. Uh, they ended up deeply in debt to the Europeans who were insisting on uh, you know, extending what they called the capitulations uh, even to the end of World War I. So I think it's a very complex history, but I think what came out of it was this millet system or the vestiges of that system meant that people of different faiths knew how to live side by side. It was okay to be different or to have the other or even to celebrate the otherness of the other rather than to live in ghettos and fearful of each other. So this was a kind of uh, conviviality, cosmopolitanism I've called it, but not in the sort of ancient Greek sense, um, that I think was really important in understanding Syria even up until... 2011, 2012, and I think some of that will return because I, I think um, even though the, the current regime has this, uh, is really trying to sort of um, um, homogenize, I think is the term that Assad has used, the country, sort of let's get, uh, have less Sunni Muslims in the country, let's sort of create uh, different kind of pockets of people in different places. I don't think that will succeed in the long term, just as I don't really think the regime is going to stay around for the, in the long term. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I completely, completely agree on, on that. Yes, absolutely. And, uh, um, Is there any other yeah. question at the back there? Or another one at the very back? Hello, um, my name is Victoria Araj. I'm an independent scholar. And thank you so much. That was f fascinating. It was very um, interesting. Um, I just wanted to uh, sort of make a brief comment on this whole issue of the right of return um, in Syria and, as, and, and the whole issue around this notion of the refuge state. I think the whole of the Middle East is actually the is the middle of refuge rather it is it is refuge um and i think if you you know if you look at palestine um with with palestine m most of the population is outside in refugee camps with lebanon uh, lebanon is a diaspora population and i think uh, syria has become I exactly the same and i think it's very um I, I think it's very optimistic to suggest that the government, um, the Syrian government, saying that people are welcome to return, it's, it's very much it's very much open in the open air. I mean, I come from Palestine, and we've been we've been discussing the right of turn <laughs> return since 1949. Um, I do know lots of Syrians have kept their the keys to their houses very much that the same way that. Palestinians have during the Nakba. And what really struck, strikes me and breaks my heart with this presentation is, is the story of the merchant of Syria and the way that he's ended up in the West. It very much reminds me of these diaspora communities and the way that people like Edward Said, um, Khalil Jabran, all these amazing um, people that should be in their home countries ended up actually in the West dur during the ends of their lives. And it just goes to show this sort of stalemate of, 
of return that we have. And may, so maybe we need to actually change the discussion, you know, rather than um, talking about migration and forced migration, etc., thinking about our role in the West and our role um, as, as agents of what's going on in the sense of how do we ensure that people do have the right of return rather than it just being a, in, up in the air for, for a century. Thank you very much. Mm. We did one last question. Hello, thanks again for your presentations. I thought, you know, it got me emotional. Um, I'm, again, I'm not a historian or scholar in this. Um, I just have experience of being going to Syria every single year for, like, months on end. And from being on the ground around the people, they are the best people I've ever met, and they are so trusting and open. But it almost felt like it was on a break. There was something about to burst within the people there was a hidden side where they were so open they were so generous but then there was also a lot of secrecy a lot of bribery and um it's all it almost feels like this was a bound to happen um from a social aspect um but yeah building on other comments that um some of my family that are around the world they they want to go back to syria but then the psychological damage that has been caused, um, they might lose that identity just from moving away and might not feel or, or regain that ever, possibly, which is, yeah, I just uh, wanted to make that comment. Uh, I, yes, I just, I just want to say, actually, the other thing that I find deeply depressing at the moment is um, this, the way that refugees are actually being bartered, almost, you know, by... Um, Russia, for example, has sort of put itself forward as, as now pressurizing this return and is using, using um, is, is approaching Europe and saying, look, you know, we know you don't want all these refugees. So if we, if we sort it out and, and, and bring some of these refugees back, you know, then maybe you can, we can do, we can, you know, we can do deals and, and uh, I mean, they're just being bartered like commodities. Uh, and yet Russia itself, how many, how many Syrian refugees has Russia taken? One. One. I, I, you know, as of January 2018. I mean, and, and so uh, it's, it is deeply cynical, that the, the sheer politicalness of it all, and the, the Gulf countries have a pretty shocking record on it all as well, frankly. Um, so many of my Syrian friends have made so many applications to go to Saudi Arabia where they've already got members of the family. They're just rejection, rejection, rejection. Um, and they're just political footballs, sadly. Um, and, and, and we're not much better, unfortunately, in this country. I hate to end on such a depressing note. You know. I will say, I think that um, Syrians uh, have very strong backbones. I mean, with this kind of attempt to barter, a few families I know did go back from Lebanon. And as soon as they saw what the conditions were, they went straight back to Lebanon to say, no, this is not the right time to go back. Um, so they are assessing very carefully. And um, I think with, if we continue to be supportive, at least in pressuring the regime, pressuring Russia, um, it, things may improve 
over the next decade or two, but it's not going to happen overnight. Could I just thank our two speakers for their fascinating presentations and for the replies they've given. Thank you also for the questions and the points you've made from the audience. I think it's right to present the very positive side, the very positive uh, foundation, if you like, uh, that we've seen in, in, in Syria's history, Syrian's traditions, uh, towards refugees, and indeed as refugees. Um, but you're quite right. There's much more to study. There's much more to be explored about what the future does hold, what the impact on the refugee communities has been of their experiences, and whether this will undermine uh, values and obviously change, change attitudes. But let us be optimistic. Let's believe that uh, the Syrian people will retain their great historic qualities, even in exile, and uh, look forward to a better future. But thank you both very much. Did you want to say something? that um, the Merchant of Syria book, actually um, half the royalties are going to support a, a charity which is for Syrian refugees, um, mainly in the country and in Turkey, to revive the um, ancient craft skills. It's called Culture Through Making. And if you'd like a, a leaflet about it, um, um, just come and see me. I'll, I'll, I'll be at the back and I'll gladly give you one. Thank you, Diana. To remind you if there are other books at the back. Thank you all very much for coming. Thank you again to our speakers. Thanks.